Welcome back to our look in Genesis. Today we're going to finish chapter 1, which is the second half of, uh, of the chapter. Um, it was meant to be a single sermon, but there's just a lot to say on it. Genesis 1 is a simple and yet majestic account of how God brings order to the cosmos in six days in which he works. Uh, he he is established as the creator, master, redeemer of all that exists, all the heavens and the earth. Uh, he's worthy to be praised and worshipped for it. And you'll see that it's a literary balance that's going to take place. We looked at day one, two, and three, at days one, two, and three last week. We're going to look at days four, five, and six this week. And we'll, we'll uh, very quickly look at day seven, which will kind of tie off the, the passage. And then we'll get into a conclusion, right? So just so you know, if, we're, if you're taking notes, we're going to do that. Day four, five, six, and then a, a very quick thing on day seven, then we'll get to a conclusion. Day five is going to be pretty short too. Uh, the text, by the way, in Genesis 1, I just want to remind you, is not uh, intended to be a scientific lesson. It is, uh, it, it's a, a theological explanation. It is a true account written in Hebrew prose, but the point is not to try to answer our 21st century modern scientific questions. Uh, more than the origin of matter and energy, it's not, uh, it's not just about that, though by, by consequence, some of those questions are answered. But uh, this passage will bring our focus to the origin of order, beauty, productivity, meaning, purpose, value, virtue, life, love, destiny, among many other things. These were the things that the ancient audience and the ancient authors were more interested in. They didn't care about where matter came from and, and uh, space and time and all the quantum physics and particles behind it. That was not on their minds. They wanted to know where does the meaning of all of this come from? That is the more elemental question. These things that God brings about, that he is seen bringing about in Genesis 1, order, beauty, productivity, etc., they didn't spontaneously generate. They didn't come about by random chance. They did not mutate into being. But they are the result of God who was hovering and present and active, forming, arranging, assigning, crafting, creating. On day one, two, and three, God created light and then waters and sky. That was more by arrangement than by creation, but he, he kind of moved things around and that formed water and sky. And then uh, dry land and vegetation. So that's, uh, th that's the first three days. And that will create the domain of what's to come in four, five, and six. He creates the home in days one, two, and three, and he creates the hosts in days four, five, and six. Or to put it differently, he creates the places in days one, two, and three, and he creates the populations of those places in days four, five, and six, right? So uh, we'll continue as we left off. We're going to go with day four, day five, day six, then a small day seven, and then we'll get into a conclusion. Let's start with day four in verses 14 to 19. This is what it says. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. 
And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Now, on day one, right, God created light, and he separated it from darkness. He called it day, he called it night. That's the, the light and the darkness, he called day and night. Here on day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, and this, this is the population that will inhabit the, the light of the day and the, the light that goes on during the night, which is the moon and the stars, right? Um, how can we have day and night if we don't have a sun? That's the popular question. That's the immediate question. If God created the heavens already, didn't that include creating the stars? All that kind of stuff. So let's... Uh, Let's attack this question, because it's a valid question. After all, on day three, he created vegetation, right? So if we're on day four right now, yesterday, he created vegetation. How did vegetation exist before a sun? Wouldn't all the vegetation die without a sun? And then you got to go, well, how would it die if death hasn't yet been introduced? Death comes in when sin comes in, right? And sin doesn't come in until chapter three, spoiler alert. Right? So uh, would, would vegetation die? How would that work? How would the vegetation live without sunlight? And, you know, technically, uh, we'd, we'd have to try to work this out because we, in our, in our modern day thinking, think that without a scientific explanation, it's very difficult for us to buy any of this. Well, vegetation needs light, not necessarily a sun. It needs light, soil, and water. And interestingly, that's exactly what's been created. Light, dry land, and there's water. But there are possibilities to consider. I, I think that because of where we're at in our, in our cultural context and the questions that roll around in our minds, I think we should come in with a, a certain amount of attention to answer that question. How do you have light before a sun and how is this going to work out and all that stuff. So there are, I, do, I do think there are three ways, uh, three possibilities to consider. First is one that I favor the least. This is, in my opinion, the, the uh, weakest explanation. But uh, it's the idea that God, when he created uh, the, the heavens up top, you know, when he created the skies and everything, he created the stars, he created the sun, he created the moon. All of that happened on day one when he said, let there be light, boom, everything was created. The, the universe explodes into being uh, with brilliant energy and light, and the sun and the moon and the stars are created. But... From the perspective of someone on earth, it would have just been a, a, a giant uh, glowing blur. Especially if you have a water vapor that's still kind of uh, diffusing and possibly a water canopy up overhead. Uh, in which case then, what God has done on day four is more of an arranging than a spontaneously generating. He's more arranging things and uh, the, the light diffusion and the water vapor and all that stuff seem to clear up. And so now you can very distinctly see a sun and a moon, and stars. So it could be that. I think that argument is interesting, but it does somewhat ignore that God had done some kind of creative work out there in the heavens, not just clearing up blurry skies on the earth. It's possible because the, the, uh, the narrative seems to be written from the perspective of someone on earth. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It starts from the earthly perspective. 
right? It doesn't start with the beginning of God. It doesn't start with the beginning of, of, of uh, anything else. It's really just kind of starting with the beginning of the story of mankind. That's the, where time begins. So it could be that. But uh, a second explanation is that God actually created the sun, moon, and stars on day one when he created light. But then he assigned them their functions on day four. Right? That's where he gave them their roles. Because look at verse 14. He says, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And so what, what's going on here is uh, it's, uh, th- this interpretation is, is taking the idea of that let there be phrase and, uh, and noticing in Hebrew that this time when he says let there be, it's attached to an infinitive. Let there be lights to separate. And so it seems like the let there be is not the creating the, the lights, but it's creating the function of separating. Let there be a separating function for these lights that I've already made on day one. Let the lights that I've made on day one, let those lights separate day and night and start marking off seasons and, uh, and, and days and years and signs in the heavens. So it could be that. It could, it could be that that was what God was doing. He was then assigning whatever roles that he wanted to to the, uh, the heavenly bodies, you know, so that they are now uh, functioning in, in rotations and cycles in such a way that uh, we, we on earth could then look up and see that there are seasons and there are days and years, stuff like that. Could be that. I think a third and final possibility is simply that it means what it says. And so I tend to favor... The Bible is not a book of mystery and, and riddles and clues. I think it just means what it says, that simply God created light on day one. I suppose that light was sourced somewhere in the middle of the solar system, let's say. And then when it was day four, he attached that light, embodied it into the sun, and then created the moon to reflect the light and created you know, stars, etc. I think that that is perfectly reasonable since everything had to begin at some point anyway. And our big hang-up on it is really like, that's impossible. That seems like it breaks the laws of nature. And that's, uh, that's an odd objection to make when this is the account of God constructing nature. Right? So once he puts it into place and he, he sees that it's good, now it's set. But to come in and say that wouldn't make sense, it wouldn't work because it's not obeying the laws, that's saying that God is then restricted to the laws of nature, which to me seems like he's not then God. In any case, the real focus that the author has here isn't on energy or matter, it's on bringing order and function to the the created universe. By creating the sun, moon, and stars, God assigns an order for them to be signs, to mark off seasons and days and years. And these are the things that people have uh, historically and even currently used the, the celestial bodies for, right? Signs in the Old Testament are indicators of warning or motivation or authentication, right? It's something to say that, uh, that God was doing something. Here's a sign to let you know God was going to do something or God was doing something. Plenty of religions look to the stars for signs, the most popular of which would be called the zodiac, right? Uh, what's your sign? You'd, You'd look into constellations, and uh, you would discern from where the placement of the stars are. You'd try to make some kind of fortune, some prediction, etc. God doesn't hide secret fortunes in the stars like that, but he has worked to communicate to some people in that manner. 
he used a, uh, some kind of a, a glowing thing in the sky, an austere, uh, to lead some wise men to the birth of Jesus. Now, these were people who were, uh, who were experienced at reading the stars in their pagan cultures. And so they would have looked to that and seen something that appeared to them like a star, and they would have followed it. The, uh, the celestial bodies of sun, moon, stars, they also are to mark off seasons, which, by the way, isn't a word to talk about summer and fall and winter and spring like we think of seasons. Uh, the word for seasons here is more related to their religious feasts. It's the season for this feast. It's the season for this celebration, this worship event. It'd be, it'd be more tied into their socio-religious uh, vernacular, not, not summer, winter, you know, that kind of stuff. Days and years is the regular word that they would use for that. That the sun, moon, and stars mark off days and years. That's how they would see, you know, the seasons and all that stuff. So days here unmistakably means 24-hour, literal, solar days. That's what it means, right? The sun and the moon, they mark off days. And it's the same Hebrew word, yom, that's used for the rest of, for, throughout this entire chapter. You know, there was evening, there was morning, the first day. And this is the, uh, the literal, the literary clue, uh, the, you know, just the, this is the point of, of contact here to show that when God says yom, he means a literal 24-hour solar day, which means that when God created the world in six days, he created it in six yoms, 24-hour literal solar days, right? There's no reason to think that it means billions of years, and if you're wondering how that would all work out, you can segue into our creationism series that we're doing as a companion to Genesis. Let me tangent on the first use of the word light here, okay? I want to talk about the word light, and then I want to talk about the word stars, but let's, start, let's talk about this word light, right? Uh, or in plural, lights. He made the greater light, he made the lesser light, if you notice that, right? He doesn't say he made the sun and he made the moon. He says he made the greater light and he made the lesser light. Why is it worded that way? Haven't you ever wondered? Why, didn't it, why doesn't it just say he made the sun and he made the moon? But the Hebrew word sun and the Hebrew word moon at the time were actually derived from names of gods of other religions. So the author, Moses, when he writes this passage, he doesn't want to use those names. He doesn't want to seem to uh, corroborate or justify or establish the existence of other gods. So he doesn't, he doesn't mention them. He doesn't let their name be used. So he just says, the greater light and, uh, to rule the day. And everyone goes, oh, I know what that is. That's the sun. But he's also passively, indirectly saying, it's not the sun god that you thought of. It's just he made a greater light for the day. He made a lesser light for the night, and it's not the moon god that you might have thought of. So it's a passive polemic that he's using here. And what's more interesting about the Hebrew word lights is that it shows up 19 times in the Bible. 15 of those times is here in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch, right? So out of the 19 times, 15 are in those first five books that, that Moses wrote. And then, uh, the, you know, the lights, they mean sun, moon, stars. M Moses write, uses this word a lot when he writes these five bo uh, books. And when it's talking about uh, lights, it's sun, moon, and stars here in Genesis 1. But in all other cases where Moses writes about it in the Pentateuch, it refers to the lampstand in the temple or the tabernacle. Right? It's this lampstand that gives light. It's the light 
in the tabernacle, the light in the holy place. And it's this, uh, this, this weird little uh, kind of side reference that uh, the author is using the same word for sun, moon, stars in the cosmos to mean the lampstand in the temple, which sets up the entire universe as God's temple. Like the, the tabernacle or the temple, the t tabernacle is just the mobile version before it becomes a temple, a sedentary version in Jerusalem. The, the tabernacle, that holy place, had, had these lights in it, this la lampstand. And it's like this microcosmic representation of the heavens with all these lights in it. It gives us a, a little bit of that clue that the entire created universe is a temple or a sanctuary of God. That this, is the, this universe is where God is to be praised and worshipped. Now about the stars though. If you talk about stars, it's possible that when God created the stars, he also created angels. And this is a hard maybe. It's just a maybe. Uh, because people do ask, when did God create angels? It's possible that God created angels on day four when he created the stars, or it's possible that he created the angels before he created the universe. You know, where he exists outside of the universe is where the angels exist. So who knows when? We don't really know. But, uh, but some people try to use uh, Job 38 um, as, a, as a reference point for this. Job 38, verse 4, it says, uh, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And sons of God there is a reference, like it's used in, in Job, to the angels. So he's saying, like, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Where were you when all the stars were singing and the angels were, uh, were shouting? So that could be an exegetical statement. Exegetical means it's like the same thing being said just kind of refined in detail. So when the morning stars sang, when the angels of God sang. So it's, it, it could be that he's, he's equating the, the two events. Could be that, maybe. Sons of God uh, is a normal title for angels, and it, so it could be that. Some people then say that angels were created on day four. What we do know is angels had to exist prior to Genesis 3, because in Genesis 3, there's a fallen angel who takes the form of a serpent. We, we know him as Satan. And he exists in Genesis 3. So angels had to exist prior to that, and they had to have a fall prior to that. When did it happen? We don't really know. But I'm just letting you know. Some people point here and say this is where it happened. I don't know. Uh, day 4, then, God makes the sun, moon, stars, maybe angels, maybe, to function, to serve for signs and seasons, for days and for years. Then we get to day 5. Now, day 5, verses 20 to 23, this is what it says. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Well, here God creates creatures to inhabit the sea and the sky, which is what he arranged on day two. He made the home in day two. He creates the hosts 
on day five. Note the Hebrew language uh, here. The, the term living creatures is not the same thing that we would call living creatures. Uh, in, our, in our day and age, we understand plants to be living creatures. Plants, uh, they, they respire. They, uh, they need nutrients. They grow. They reproduce. And they die. So we understand them to be just like regular other animals and things. So they're, they're living things. But uh, plants were created on day three. Uh, and uh, they aren't referred to as living things in the Bible. Just, that's just not the language that's used because Hebrew didn't use the term that way. When it talked about living creatures, it talked about uh, the things that belonged to what we would regard as the uh, kingdom animalia, okay, the animal kingdom. The Hebrew notion of living things really only applied to, to the animals and mankind, human beings. So we're all living creatures. Plants are just plants. They, they categorically section that off into a different thing. But these creatures that he created here, the, you know, everything in the water and everything uh, that flies around the sky and stuff, these creatures are categorized the way that the ancient author and the ancient audience understood it, in their dominions, in their habitats, in their environments, right? The, the water creatures are the water creatures, and the sky creatures are the sky creatures. So I'm guessing that includes a bunch of insects that fly, you know, it could be just flies, beetles, and mosquitoes, or whatever. All, all that stuff, including birds, and vultures, and whatever else, you know. But uh, when it comes to the water creatures, they're all fish. They're all water creatures. You know, like, people get all bent out of shape when, when someone goes, uh, Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. And uh, someone else goes, he was in the belly of a whale for three days. And someone goes, that's impossible. A whale's not a fish. A whale is a mammal. But the Hebrew author didn't care about that. He didn't, he didn't think, he, to them, the word fish just meant water thing, right? Sea creature. So the whale is a sea creature. They didn't know what a mammal was. That didn't, that's imposing something uh, in the wrong time frame, right? That's, uh, that's not going to work. That's not good exegesis. So linguistically, in Hebrew, a whale was a fish. You just have to deal with that. Right? You're going to find more and more that the, as you deal with Genesis, it's an ancient document that, from a different culture with a different use of language. I mean, they would never use the word cool to mean good. That, that would seem strange to them. But that, you know, for us, that's, that's normal. We have a, a, a different way of using language. So did they. And so as it's translated to us in English, it's going to carry different nuances of meaning. The difference between God's regard for plants versus animals and, and man is that he blesses animals and man. He doesn't, he doesn't bless the, the vegetation, but he blesses the animals. In verse 22, it says, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters, fill the, fill the sky, right? He blesses the living creatures. That's what he does. So plants were created, but they weren't given a blessing. Sea creatures and sky creatures, they were created and God blessed them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill their domains. So there was something there that was going on where God was saying, like, apparently they, they had just a small amount, and he said, multiply and then fill. See, the vegetation, it just sprouted forth. The earth was full of vegetation. But he started with a smaller pocket of animals, and then he said, multiply and fill, go. And they were given this blessing, and the blessing, if you notice, is not, uh, it's not a blessing of gift. It's a blessing of privilege. 
You know, we go like, oh, I'm very blessed because I, I have a car. I'm very blessed because I have a home. I, I'm very blessed because I have clothes. You know, we, we think if you have possession, it's blessing. But that's not the way that the Bible uses it. When, when, it's, when it blesses, when God blesses them, he gives them a privilege. He says, multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. And that's something that you will, uh, you'll have the privilege of doing and stewarding and, and going forth to carry out the mission that God has given them. Right? It sounds like an obligation he throws at them, but it's not. It's a privilege. No one in the ancient world would have thought that multiplying and being fruitful was, a, was an obligation. They would have said it's a privilege. They wouldn't find that to be a burden. They would have found that to be glorious. So God blesses the, the, the sea creatures and the sky creatures, the birds, and he blesses them to be fruitful and multiply to fill their domains. Then we get to day six in verses 24 to 31. Now, we're going to break this apart into smaller chunks here, okay? Uh, and just like day three where God created dry land and vegetation, uh, he did that in two constituent parts. Day six will also be done in two constituent parts, right? Here's the first part, verse 24 and 25. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Are you hearing a repeated phrase here? He made everything according to its kind. He doesn't say that he made one thing and allowed billions of years to pass by and it eventually kind of sectioned off and gained genetic information, became more complex, and then you eventually have a positive beneficial mutation resulting in a novel species. He doesn't say that. He says he uh, has the earth bring forth living creatures. So it starts out of dust, creates living creatures, each according to... It's kind. And he, uh, he gives it three basic groups, the way that, that Moses writes it. Three basic groups. First, he calls it livestock. Those are domesticated animals. Then there are the creeping, uh, creeping crawling things. And those uh, are like the, the wild herds. and, and uh, Basically, it's prey. It's the stuff that gets preyed upon. And then there are the beasts. Those are the predators, wild predators. That's kind of how the, uh, the ancient language would have understood the definition of those words. The domesticated animals and then the, the, the wild animals that are prey and the wild animals that are predators. And you should know, by the way, though, that beasts are not yet predatorial in Genesis 1. They're not yet predatorial since death hasn't entered the world until, you know, until later, right? No death means no killing, which means... These animals were not killing machines. That's how the earth began, and then that's how the earth will eventually end up. You should know that, okay? Here, uh, let, me, let me actually prove that to you. Genesis 1, verse 30, it says, And to every beast, which would be the, be the predators, to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, everything that has the breath of life, every living creature, right? Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So all the animals started off vegetarian. Sounds awful, but it was paradise. They all started off vegetarian. Now, 
In Isaiah 65, you get a picture of the kingdom, the, the, the restored kingdom, the promised kingdom to Israel. This is when Jesus returns, his second coming, he comes back, he's going to wage war with the nations of the world, and then he's going he's to establish his kingdom and rule for a thousand years in which Israel will be redeemed and set in place, the temple will be rebuilt, all that kind of stuff. So for a thousand years, Jesus will be reigning on the earth. And during that time period, the, the nature of the world will be different then, just like in Genesis 1, the nature of the earth is, was different then. We, we should not ever assume that everything will continue the way it is, the way that we are. The way that the world is right now. The earth is cursed and it's got all sorts of chaos and entropy, uh, you know, devolving and breaking everything down. But when Jesus comes back, there's going to be this glimpse of what it's supposed to be like. And in Isaiah 65, you get that glimpse. It says in Isaiah 65, verse 25, uh, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, says Yahweh, right? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. How will it ever end up like that, God? How are you going to do that? How are you going to make a wolf lie down with a lamb? How are you going to make a lion eat straw? And for him, he would say, that's how it's supposed to be. That's how it was from the beginning. I gave every green plant for food for every animal, including what you consider beasts. Livestock, creeping thing, beasts, God has the earth bring them forth according to their kinds, right? That explains their origin and their relationship. Their origin means they were formed out of the dust of the ground, just like the vegetation was in verse 11. And the relationship means that the earth sustains the livestock and the creeping things and the beasts. So God creates and sustains animals out of the earth. That's phase one of day six. Phase two, let's start with verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God creates human beings. He says, let us make man in our image. Why does he use plural? Who's he talking to? And I think there are two layers to this answer. The first layer is simply uh, something that we don't consider often, which is that God has meetings in heaven where he deliberates with angels. He doesn't just sit and wait doing nothing. He's, he's talking and with angels and he's deliberating and he's, he's doing something. Uh, in fact, in Job 1 and 2, Job chapters 1 and 2, you get uh, a good glimpse of God having meetings with angels and even Satan gets to walk in there you know, in his full Satan form, like he's, he, he's, not, uh, he's not a good angel. He's a fallen angel. He's the leader of the fallen angels. But he walks into that meeting. 
And they can like sit there and talk and he can, he can try to, you know, to make a deal with God. And God's like, well, you're not going to trick me. And, you know, they can have this conversation. So God has these meetings in heaven. And it could be when God said, let us make man in our image. When he says that, he seems to be deliberating with angels, communicating on what he was going to do, what he alone was going to do. So the angels were not involved in creating man, just so you know. And we, we know that because uh, angels have all this curiosity about mankind. They're made uh, with, uh, with greater power but lesser glory. And uh, you, you read all about that in Hebrews chapter 1. So the angels did not help create mankind. So when God is saying, let us make man in our image, he seems to be talking out loud to someone, and it's probably to angels, but uh, he doesn't need their help. In fact, you, you kind of realize he doesn't need their permission or their help, or he doesn't need them to carry it out or anything like that. You see that in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, when God says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Verse 14, Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Whom did God consult? When he created the world, who, who made God understand? Who helped God? Rhetorical answer would be nobody. Nobody did. So God did not need the assistance of angels, and he didn't uh, use the assistance of angels, but he could have been at least talking to them. Uh, there are times when he wants to deliberate with someone, and he wants to just discuss what he's going to do. Uh, Genesis 18, verse 17 is a moment where you see that. It says, Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So God was going to do something, and he wanted to communicate it. It doesn't mean that he needed Abraham's permission. It doesn't mean that he needed Abraham's help. God was going to do it. God alone was going to do it. God gets 100% of the credit because he did 100% of the work. But he wanted to tell Abraham. And in the same vein, uh, he seems to be deliberating with angels, telling them what he's going to do. But he doesn't need their help. He doesn't need their permission. And he doesn't have them do any of it. So that's layer one. I think he's talking to angels about what he himself is going to do. Layer two is that this is a veiled reference to the Trinity. That God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, that certainly squares away with our New Testament uh, theology, but it is also admittedly not what the original author and the original audience would have thought. It's not. At best, the original audience would have thought, uh, what does this let us? And uh, the best thing that they could do was just think that it was a, a grammatical device where sometimes a plural is used to express magnitude, majesty. You know how like um, when we talk to kings, or, or we don't talk to kings, but when you watch TV shows where someone's talking to the king, they'll say, uh, your majesty, your highness, right? But they'll never actually say you, They'll say, does his majesty wish to blah, blah, blah? Would, would your highness allow me to blah, blah, blah? And they wouldn't say, would you want to do this? Right? And so we, we would, in, in English, we would kind of move into the third person in order to convey uh, a reverence, uh, to venerate, to, to lift up and exalt. In Hebrew, they would use a plural, so uh, a really good example of that would be Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Well, the word El means God. Elohim means gods 
In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. And you kind of go, wait a minute. This now sounds like a polytheistic myth that many gods were involved. But then the verb structure shows you that it's a single person. In the beginning, gods, he created the heavens and the earth. So the verb uh, indicates to you without any doubt that it's a single uh, subject acting. But gods is what he's called to show a majesty. That's how the original audience might have understood the let us make man in our image. And yet, when we get to the New Testament and, and we get a much more refined understanding of who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit, etc., then it's very possible that when God says, let us make man in our image, he's uh, referring to the triune nature of God, that he himself is in, exists eternally in three persons. And so when he creates mankind, he, he creates the male and female because they too are meant to exist in oneness, but multiple persons. So that's why marriage is, a, a, uh, is this strange, mysterious reference to God, that there's multiple persons and yet there's a oneness to them. Note that in verse 26 and 27, I'm just going to read it again, but uh, I'll give a special emphasis. Uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Three times, mankind is, is said to be made in the image of God. As if three images imprinted upon us. So, maybe. At best, it's maybe, because un unless there's a verse that explicitly says it is, all we can do is speculate. But maybe, God was saying... Let us make man in our image in order to, uh, to stamp upon human beings the nature of the triune God. I definitely think that it has to do with God deliberating with angels. I absolutely speculate. I, I suspect, I think, maybe, that it could also mean the Trinity thing. We're made in the image of God. We're never described as being made in the image of angels, even though we have certain similarities with them, certain features that are, are shared. They're called sons of God or children of God, so are we. So there is something that our relationship to God, we have certain similarities to angels, but we're never described as being made in the image of angels. But what is the image of God then? What is it? If someone were to ask you, we're made in the image of God, they, they say, well, what does that mean? You know, how do you answer that? It, it doesn't just mean offspring. It doesn't just mean children, biological offspring. It doesn't mean that. Plants and animals reproduce according to their kind. But it doesn't reproduce in their image. Right? That use of the word in their image, it, uh, the, the term in their image, it, it's different than according to its kind. So you have to kind of like walk around in the Old Testament to see how this word image is used. And people had images of their gods, idols, little images of their gods in their homes or in temples or, you know, high places and things like that. Uh, and these images were statues or other physical objects that, you know, that would be there and they'd say, ah, behold, your God. In Exodus, didn't they construct a golden calf and say, behold, God, right? Didn't they, didn't they say that? Well, the way the, the word image Selim is used in the Bible. It, uh, it means that whatever this thing is, 
the image is a, represent, a representative in physical form. But it's not a representation of physical appearance. I want to distinguish between the two. So you can have a statue of a god in like a temple or something, and you'd say, ah, this is the represent, uh, representative of our god. It's in physical form here. But it's not what our god looks like. Right? It's not a representation of the God's physical appearance. It's just a physical object that represents the presence of and the essence of our God. That's the way that they would understand uh, the, the idea of an image or an idol. It's a physical avatar, an instrument by which the, uh, the God, the deity, would operate in the world. Man, mankind, human beings... Man was a physical representation of God in some way, of his presence, of his essence. But we are not a, a representation of God's physical appearance because God doesn't have a physical appearance. When, uh, when we sinned, the representation of God was certainly damaged but not lost altogether. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's Genesis 9, uh, verse 6. There's a, a remark there's like a murderer. There's a guy who murders someone, and God said, like, you know, if you're murdered, then you should die. And he institutes capital punishment, saying, uh, because man was made in the image of God. So even when he's talking about murderers and sinful people killing other people who are born with a sinful nature, he's saying, even though you have sinful natures, you're still made in the image of God. So we have fallen into sin. We still have the image of God, but there's something certainly lost about it. Right? There's something that, that's, that's been broken or distorted in some way. Being male and female uh, is, is a feature of the image of God, it seems like. But that's weird, too, because animals are male and female, most of them, right? Animals are male and female, and yet that doesn't seem to ever be mentioned about the animals. And yet it's this very important feature that God points out about mankind, for human beings, he's like, I made you in the image of God, male and female. And he, he attaches to that something of an identity of being made in the image of God. It's part of his design in making us that way, male and female. That's, that's assigned by God. It's not identified by our feelings. It's given to us by God. And protecting that is a priority in order to protect and preserve the image of God. The plurality of, of man being male and female helps inform about the plurality of God. Uh, as he's, he says, let us make man in our image. And our best look at what it means to be made in the image of someone is in Genesis 5. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, jump to it. Verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And notice again, that's attached to this idea of being in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, if you have a son, you know, your son already has your genetic information, at least half of it, right? Um, depending on which parent you are, he's got 50% of your DNA and 50% of the other person's DNA. 
Well, what does it mean to be made in the image here? It, it seems to be more than simply biological descent. It's not just that. It, it includes representation. A man represented his ancestors. That's why genealogies were so important. That's why Genesis 5 is here with the genealogy. Because a, a, a person represents his ancestors. And the ancestors then kind of establish a, a certain reputation and credibility for the descendant. So the image of God comes down to this. It is the capacity to serve as God's representatives with his presence and his essence, and it's the capacity to be and act like him. Right? We, by us just being human beings, we represent God. We are the physical representation of God's reality. And... Uh, you know, when mankind was created, and certainly for every Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you, right? The essence of God is in you. There's a, a perfection to the original human beings, and there's, uh, there's the Holy Spirit to every redeemed Christian. So there's the essence of God that, uh, that comes with the presence of a human being. By simply walking around, the presence, the essence of God is represented and yet there's this capacity to be like him and to act like him. A child is made in the image of his parents. But that becomes more recognizable as the child grows and matures. We have a bunch of babies here at our church, right? And, uh, and it's ridiculous to me how right when the baby's born, everyone's like, which one does he look like, mom or dad? Looks like an alien, if we're being honest. Every newborn baby looks weird. But you sit there and you try to like sift out which features belong to dad, which ones belong to mom. You, you go, oh, I think he has your nose. I think he has your chin. I think he has your ego. You kind of have this, these ways of, of just going, you know, oh, this, the kid is like this. And she's just like you, you know. And we sit there and try to do that. But then as time goes on, as years go by, it shifts. When my son Elias was born, right when he was born, everyone noticed his eyebrows, and so they said he looks just like his dad. And now, as he's growing up, everyone says, you know, he's a lot more like his mom. It just shifted over time. And so we've, we've all just kind of come to the agreement that maybe from the eyeballs and up, he looks like me, and from below the eyeballs, he looks like mom. And then, like, which one does he act like? It's like a mix of both. Makes a lot of trouble, that's like me. Actually, that's like both of us. But it shifts over time. The image that he's in, was, is that knowable right from the day he's born? Or is that something that he grows and matures into? See, by the time he becomes a man, by the time any child becomes a man, then you know whether or not he grew into the image of his mother or his father. Then you know. It's not just physical features of the parents. It's the attitudes, the expressions, the traits, right? You and I are made in the image of the living God. We can serve as his representatives. We carry his essence with us, and we can grow to act and be like him. 
But you have to grow into that. It's not simply just the fact that you exist, you are like him. It's not that you do have to grow into him. You've got to work on that. Exercise that. Like a muscle, you have to exercise it. Like a skill, you have to practice it. You have to get better at it. Right? You must. And the New Testament will even open this up to us. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Right? You have to put that on. That's something that he keeps telling you in that chapter to work at, to grow in. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, put on the new self, which is being renewed. So that's a process. It's being renewed. It's continually being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? You become more and more like the image of the creator. Right now, we're, you know, we, we, we come with sinfulness. We come with a, a damagedness, a brokenness. And yet, there's this renewing process that takes place if you come to place your faith in Jesus. If you repent of sin and trust in Jesus, there's this renewing that takes place. And it's a process. It's a sanctifying process, one that makes you holy over time. And so it takes you back to the image of when we were new. The image of God. Because so much is distorted to be the image of the world, the image of the devil. Our capacities for reason and, and our conscience, our self-awareness, our spiritual discernment, all of these are tools to help us display God's image. They have to be informed by the word, powered by prayer, exercised in repentance, strengthened in faith and trust tempered and forged by testing and trial, even suffering and experience. Being made in the image of God means that we carry his essence, we represent him, we can live and be like him. And being made in the image of God is what confers upon us our human dignity. This is why a human being is not equal to an animal. It is not because we are more highly evolved. That does not confer anything in terms of ontological value. In the ancient worldview, people were slaves to their gods with no dignity, other than the idea that maybe their gods needed them to carry out tasks or something. But in the ancient worldview, people understood themselves to be slaves to gods. There was no human dignity, which is why human sacrifice and things like that would happen all the time. Wars could happen all the time, all that stuff. Today, according to naturalism, atheistic evolution, naturalism, you are just mutated slime. You're the result of billions of years of accidents. There is no inherent worth in you. There's only the worth that you have to contrive, orchestrate, that you have to declare. In our current culture, on a completely different end of the spectrum, everyone acts like uh, their, their worth is, is godlike. Their worth is supreme. You know, there's this entitlement that comes. They can identify with whatever they want, and everyone else has to concede. There's this, you know, like, this is me, and everyone has to be okay with it. So either you think you have no dignity, or you think that you have godlike dignity, 
And in, in both those cases, it's just, it's just because you have to just decide. Nature is the way nature is, and our worth comes from what we think of ourselves, etc. But according to God, according to God, according to His Word, we are made in His image. And that gives us the dignity that's to be protected. We are made in His image. You know, in arguing against the abortion of unborn children, it's a great fallacy to think that the task at hand is simply to prove that a fetus is a human being. Because even if you convince someone that the fetus is a human being, why should they care if they think that human beings are just mutated slime? The dignity and worth of a person is not because he or she is human. The dignity and worth of a person, according to God, is because he or she is made in the image of God. What you do to that child, you inflict toward God. That's why. Of course, our best and perfect example of a man who's made in the image of God is Jesus. Colossians 1.15 just says it blatantly. He is the image of the invisible God. He is. He is the perfect representative, the true essence, and he lives and acts and is God. So God made man in his own image. That's the second phase of, uh, of day six. He created animals, uh, the, uh, land animals. Then he created human beings. And he, he kind of caps that off in verses 28 to, uh, to 31 by blessing them. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Notice how the blessing that God gives to the human beings is not just like stuff, but it's a role. It's a function. He grants them two kinds of privileges. The first is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? That's uh, that's a command to reproduce, to spread, to cover the globe with the image of God so that anywhere you go on the planet, God is represented in His glory. And now that the world is in sin and Jesus came to, to save us, right? The, the, the image is, is damaged, but those who are saved, there's something that's being renewed, Right? And so he says, okay, you've got this, this image that's being renewed in you. Now go and make disciples of all nations. He gives this great commission at the end of the book of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey 
all that I commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Right? So he says, like, go make disciples and teach them how to be and act like God. And let them be renewed. So the, the great commission at the end of the book of Matthew is really just taking us back to Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with the image of God. Not the damaged image, not the distorted image, not the, not the worldly sinful uh, image that it's become because it's so distorted by our evil, but the renewed image. Go and show who God really is, not this lie. So that's the first idea that God has given them. Cover the globe with the image of God. Second is subdue the earth, have dominion over it. Right? To, to have authority, to, to have authority over creation. God is, is a creator and God is a Lord. He makes us little creators, little rulers over his stuff. That's, that's the privilege he gives us to, to be creative as well, to be able to like figure stuff out. I get to, I get to see people be little creators in, uh, in, in my own home. I got two guys that live with me. I'm going to put them on the spot right now. Right? There's one guy, Jacob, who he, he just creates food. Right? He's convinced that that's the greatest act of love. And so he just creates food and keeps throwing it at people. And then says, Venmo me. But he does that. Because you, you know, like, to me, when I open the fridge, I see nothing. And then I just close it and I walk away and then I come back later and try to just double check in case I missed like a, a Lunchable that I could eat. Otherwise, I just see nothing. I, it's, it's all just visual noise. But when he opens the fridge, I don't know, it, it, like he sees these different parts that in his mind can turn into something and so he creates. The other guy I live with is John, John Kim. And uh, he has this way of like, you know how like some people, they walk in, they're a whirlwind and like, you know, wherever they go, there's a ton of noise, dust, and then like when they leave a room, you can see the trail they left behind. Jacob's like that. But John, he walks into a room and it's the opposite effect. It's chaos, it's void, it's formless. And then like he walks in and everything gets arranged and assigned and, and put into place. Everyone who's been to my house sees the shoes and they're all lined up. They don't start off that way. Evolution did not produce that arrangement. Someone came in and designed it, right? He, he walked in, he said, this is formless and void. It's tohu and bohu. And I now need to create. And so he, takes, he starts to form, and he assigns. You go there, you go there, you all face that way. And there's a purpose to it. He faces them out the door, because that's the way you're going when you put them on brilliant. God makes us, he, he puts in us these weird instincts to create, to arrange, to assign, to form. He makes us stewards of his creation, and stewards is really an operative term that we need to know. Yes, we are to rule the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, yes, but that's not told to us in some exploitative way where we can, uh, we can just do whatever we want with the place, you know, break the things, burn things, we don't care, because it's really God's stuff. Look, we, we rule and own the world just as much as a child owns his bedroom. Yes, it's yours, but really it's mine. 
right? That's what every parent knows to his or her child. Yes, your room is yours. As long as I let you have it, but really it's mine. So when I say clean your room, clean your room. Because it's really mine. Yours is a stewardship. It's temporary. It's a privilege that's given to you. And you are measured in, in some sense of how well you steward it. So we ought not to think that because, you know, we have dominion over the earth, subdue it. Oh, we could just blow things up and burn things down. It doesn't matter. And it's even, it, it's, it's just as irresponsible of an idea to think that, well, God's eventually going to do away with this earth and create a new heavens, new earth. And so let's just do whatever we want with this one. It's going to go away anyway. That's not a good mentality either. That's not the kind of mentality that imitates God who makes order and beauty and productivity and virtue and value, life and love and destiny wherever he goes. He takes disorder and brings it into order. He doesn't take something beautiful and burn it. He makes something better. That's how we ought to treat the world. That's an act of stewardship and worship to God. Now, I certainly don't think that we should all become environmental activists. I think that that often prioritizes the environment in a, in a way over people, which is not a, a healthy way to think. But it does mean that we ought to be discerning and humble in how we take care of God's world. God saw all that he had made, and he said it was very good. See, with, with the different days that he creates things, he says he, he saw it and it was good, it was good, it was good. And then he creates mankind, creates human beings, and he says it was very good. The crown of creation is in place. The representation of God is now in place over a kingdom, and it's very good. Day 7. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. That's the bookend, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Six days. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Look how many times it says that he had done work, but on this day he rested. God was done creating all the universe, and he doesn't speak on day seven. Right On the other days he says, let there be, and, and, he, and he creates, he speaks, and in his speaking it works, and it was so. But he doesn't speak on day seven. He doesn't work. He just blesses and he rests. And there's a lot that can be said about that seventh day, the, the Sabbath day, the, you know, the, that idea. There's a lot that can be said about that. We're not going to say it today. If, if you're curious, go to our series on the Ten Commandments and look up the Fourth Commandment. And there's a whole series on that. But here we all, all we need to know is that God worked six days. He rested the seventh day. He blessed it. And that becomes very important as a model for Israel. They said he worked six days, he rested the seventh. So that is the model for us, and God commands us to work six days and rest on the seventh. All right, let's, let's bring these thoughts down to, to an end here, right? And I want to simply ask the question, this simple question. If the people of Israel did not have a Bible, because they didn't, 
at this time, if they didn't have a Bible and all they've read so far now is Genesis 1, what did they learn? This is all they have so far. And it's their first time reading it, so they don't, they don't have the rest of the story yet. What have they learned? Well, I'm going to give you four ideas. The first is simply this. God created, and it was so. God created, and it was so. They had so many stories of how all these other things were the origin of mankind. All these other religions told them that all these other worldviews, everyone had opinions. Everybody had their own thoughts. But God wrote this thing down in an age where oral tradition would run rampant and all sorts of different tales and cultures and viewpoints, perspectives. But he says, write this down. And he has it written down so that they have a single, unmistakable copy where if they don't remember it right, they can go back and read it again. Someone can read it to them. God created it. God alone created it. He alone is provider, master, creator. He's the one that gives it a purpose, sets the standard. He's what designs and he is what defines. God, God alone. Because we keep looking to other things, as human beings, not just Israel, but all human beings, we keep looking to all sorts of other things as provider, as master, as our purpose, as our standard, as our definer. We think because we grew up a certain way, or we have certain friends or certain coworkers, or, or certain teachers, because we've seen certain television shows and we've heard certain songs, and because we like certain things, that must be the way, and God seems a little unreasonable for not fitting what I like or what I rely on or what I've spent my lifetime learning as provider and master and purpose and standard and, and as the definer. And yet the record stands. It says God is the one who creates. God is the one who's in charge. If you sculpt or paint or cook or bake or craft or build something, you're in charge of the thing that you made. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Nothing that has been made has been made apart from him. He is master and creator. Second thing you'd learn. The emphasis in this chapter is not simply that God made, but that God spoke. How many times does he say, let there be and then things come to be. When God speaks, it was so. That was this, uh, this repeating theme throughout this chapter. God spoke and it happened. God spoke and it happened. And this, uh, this engraved into the minds of Israel that when God speaks, there's power and authority. That's why they learned to, to hold his word in high esteem. Psalm 33, 6. It says, By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And just, I don't even have this slide here, but 
consider that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's where power and authority are. Not ours, His. So the emphasis is not just that God made, but that God spoke. And when God speaks, it is worth listening. What God says is worth reading. In it, He reveals Himself. It's profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training up in righteousness. A third thought that Israel would have understood, and that we certainly do, is that the world was not always the way it is now. Right? The way it is now, it's, it's falling apart. The world was not always that way. The chaos of sin, the struggle to survive, that was not part of the original picture. God's initial work dispelled the chaos, brought everything into perfect order, e equilibrium, harmony. Hope for the future does not depend on, the, on, on God having to try to attempt to do something new. In fact, if anything, what God is doing is He's restoring what's been lost. He's going he's gonna to take humanity and, and creation, restore it to the way it's supposed to be. It, it went astray. It went in a different direction. It, it fell off, the, off track. And God demonstrates His grace that instead of resolving the, the chaos of sin through judgment and destruction, instead of looking at, at, at what happened and just going, oh, forget it, and exploding the whole thing, he chose a path of reconciliation and restoration. People of Israel knew that because they were, they were just freed from slavery in order to now live as free people worshiping God. So they already knew that this world was all screwed up and stuff. 400 years, they've been slaves. And now they're set free and God says, I'm taking you somewhere. I'm taking you to a promised land. And, he's, and they see that the world used to be perfect and he's trying to take them back to that place where it's abundant and it's full of blessing to multiply, be fruitful, a land flowing with milk and honey where the people of God would be the people of God. Just a fourth idea, a final idea, which is really just for us. I guess Israel might not have thought about this too much. See, the Israelites had difficulty rising above the common view in their world where gods uh, in their cultures had all these needs and all these whims and stuff. And, uh, and so they'd have these, these very simplistic views of, of, of the different gods. You know, this one, he, you have to serve him by offering him this kind of food or this one has to be uh, given this kind of prayer that's chanted at this time of day or something. There was always some kind of ritual, so, you know, and everything got very reduced. And there was the mountain god, the river god, the forest god, the fertility god, there's a sun god, moon god. You know, they had all these different gods that had very localized and discrete jurisdictions. And we got this way of reducing the power of the divine into just these small, little, manageable figureheads, little vending machine gods. And we think that we're, we're beyond that today, right? We think, oh, we don't believe in many gods. And so we, we think that that's like not our instinct at all. And yet, do you not find in yourself this strange 
persistent instinct to keep hiding God into the, into the corner of your life. As you amble through your days, pursuing your own ambitious goals, driven by your narcissism and hedonism and materialism, refusing God to, uh, to bridle your own self-sufficiency. There's this sense of like, yeah, I, I worship God. He's my savior. He's my everything. I owe him all of it. And then you go to work and you do whatever you want. You act like however you want. Or you go home to your family and you act however you want. Or you look at your money and you just don't trust where it's going to go so you don't give it in certain directions and you hold on to it. And you don't like the way that the laws are constructed about money and so you kind of bend rules or ignore some. Is it not our instinct to take God and say, oh yeah, he's huge. And then you stuff him into a corner. And then you try to live as, as happily as you can your own way. You can, you can choose whatever entertainment you want, no matter how vile and, and, and depraved it is. You can say, well, it's still entertaining. I just take it as a story. I like it. And you just you, you take it. And then you go, oh, but God is still big God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you keep stuffing him in the corner. We need a revitalized concept of how great, how huge and infinite God is. Don't stuff him into Genesis 1 and leave him there. Like he just made stuff and he's done. He's more than that. He is involved in our creation, meaning, yes, how we're made, the makeup of how we're made. So even your giftedness and stuff comes from him. But he's also the image that we're made in. So that's something we're supposed to grow and mature into. So he's a destiny. He's not just an origin. He's also the source of our blessing, our fruitfulness. So if you're looking somewhere else to be blessed, it will come out fruitless on the scale of eternity. And he's involved in our work, telling us where our dominion is. He knows what we're supposed to do. And he calls you to it. And he has good work set aside for you to do. He's not so interested in in what job you take. He's interested in in why you take it and how you take it and how you're going to use that job for the real work that needs to be done, which is to fill the earth with the, the image and the glory of God, to represent him in how you are and how you live. He's not a distant maker of things. It's not deism. It's not that he just puts stuff together and then lets you do your thing. He's so much more involved. He's hovering in the most attentive and powerful, involved way. Not to just micromanage you. That's not it. But it's to bring you to the fullness of what you're meant to be. God is creator He is master, and to our fallen world, he is redeemer. He is author and perfecter. He is worthy to be worshiped and praised. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray.
God, we worship you. How could we look at all creation and think that, that we're the main characters of the story? To think that all of this is about us. It's not. Everything is aimed back to your glory, including us. And then in your undeserved goodness, you have decided to share all of it with us. God, we're, we're far from where we were supposed to be. And so we thank you for the, for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ who came as the, the right kind of man, the one that lived the way he's supposed to live who represented you the way you're supposed to be represented. So that by his example and by his, by his record and the exchange of ours with his, all those who trust in him would be renewed in you. Give us a big picture of God. Expand our minds to keep trying to fill up with your magnitude, with your immensity, with your infinity. You are creator and master, redeemer, author and perfecter. You are worthy to be worshiped and praised. And so may we regard you with the utmost and knowing our fallenness distances us from you immeasurably. May we look to Jesus, who is God in flesh, to bridge that infinite gap and bring us back to where we need to be. That you would take us and make us new again. Grow us as your church and help us to make disciples and to fill the earth with your image and glory. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.